Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today in uh, in his lounge by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? <laughs> I'm all right, thanks, John. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, we're going to talk today about your Alpha report and the, the main focus there is on Games Workshop. Uh, and the reason for that is that its directors have sold a great big load of shares. Uh, so the theme there is skin in the game. Games Workshop is a quality company. Um, it's just obviously you have to now ask a question of, uh, of why the directors are bailing, so we'll do that. But we're going to talk about another couple of quality companies as well that you've talked about this week, Relics uh, and Avon Rubber, and then perhaps a company uh, whose quality is rather questionable, Ocado, and a company whose quality is very questionable, Centrica. But yeah. let's start with Games Workshop. What are your worries here, Phil? I don't know if they're a worry, but I mean, my, my general worry about this company is that Whilst it is a very good company, it is a company and a business that comes with a certain amount of operational risk with it, has a lot of fixed cost, fixed overhead. And when things are going well, it means that the increases in revenue don't lead to lots of increases in costs and you get a big increase in profits. This is known as operational gearing or operational leverage. And at the moment, the company is doing extremely well. People love Warhammer at the moment. They're buying lots of products. That means the manufacturing plants in Nottingham are humming and the profits are going up by a lot. The problem with that is that the operational gearing works both ways. If if sales or revenues ever go down, the profits go down as well. And Games Workshop has a bit of a checkered history in terms of uh, the popularity of its games, its fantasy games, and and therefore its profits. And at the moment, we've had, what, probably three, four years now of a nice upswing in business. And it's almost sort of in uncharted territory. And the shares, the profits in the shares have gone through the roof. And we've got to a situation now where the shares are very, very highly valued, I think just sort of 70 71 pounds they trade on a forward next 12 months PE of 29 times which is punchy and it's implying that profits are going to still keep going up and going up a lot but the visibility on revenues in my opinion is not that great I think they're going to, they're still going to go up for a while but whether they can stay up I don't know, and I'm not sure anybody else knows either. For me, it seems that if you look at what the share price is implying, you take take into account the medium-term visibility of revenues, throw onto it this operational gearing, which means that profits respond quite wildly to changes in revenues. And there's quite a lot of risk here now. There's quite a lot of valuation risk, business risk, that risk has been on the upside, but you know it's imp- what we are at the moment looking at a very rosy future, very rosy future being priced into the shares, and that sort of raises the question: um, Do the directors think the same thing? And um, we've seen this week that the chief executive has sold two thirds of his beneficial shareholding, and is left with a rump which is valued at 75% of his basic salary from last year. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the things that, that you've mentioned in this report, in your alpha report, that, you, that you're worried about, that, that actually chief executives should really be, be, you know, ha- have skin in the game, um, have some kind of stake in the performance of the company. 
Yeah, I, and I, much more than seventy five percent. Yeah, I mean, someone someone pointed out to me on Twitter this morning and made a very very reasonable point that the chief executive has never had a big stake. But for me, well, that's just makes it even worse. You know, he should have he should have had a, a stake. I and think this is a stake that they've built up through through actual purchasing in the market rather than stuff that's been awarded to them as part of their yeah, bracket. Yeah. Um, you know, you want to see directors, you know, Warren Buffett calls, eat their own cooking. And this is not this is not criticism of Games Workshop management in that they have done a terrific job. You know, nothing, nothing to do with their integrity or their ability as managers of the business. They've done a superb job. They are not alone, and particularly in a lot of small companies, um, of owning probably less than they should. You know, you always think, well, if you're not prepared to own a lot of shares, why should I? Yeah, I mean, th- these sales by the directors at Games Workshop, they're not, they're not, it's not inside trading. They, they're not allowed to do that. No. So, so there could be only many reasons for, the, for these sales. It's just where it leaves them that's the concern. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my view is, I mean, I've, I've seen businesses like this before. Not, not fantasy, fantasy war games businesses, but businesses that have an element of cyclicality to them, fixed cost base. On the upswing, they look superb. They are supremely profitable. And I have seen directors cash out of businesses like this. I'm not saying that the management of Games Workshop are calling the top of the shares here. They might be. They might be. Obviously, time will tell. What what I'm saying, and... And my view is is that when you're an investor, you've got two things. You've got two things which you can use to your advantage to weigh up a share. You know how much money the company's making now, and you know what its share price is. A share price, high share price, means high expectations of future profit growth. And when you when you look at a business like Games Workshop, where even a slight disappointment on revenue would lead to a very big change in profit. I just think, personally, when you've got a share valued at 29 times next 12 months' earnings, those risks aren't reflected in that valuation. Mm. And maybe the, maybe the chief executive, who knows the business better than I do and better than anybody else, thinks the same thing. Maybe. You've, uh, you've got them from your UK I have. I have. Uh, this, this, presumably, presumably, after making a nice little profit on them, they've, they've made fifteen percent since the start of the year. It's not bad. But I personally, um, I don't have the confidence of the stability of revenue in this business. Should, should we talk about a couple of companies that you do have continuing confidence in? Yeah. Uh, should we start with Avon Rubber because that's the subject of your magazine column this week yeah in the UK quality portfolio it is and it's in the fantasy sip as well what is it you like about this company Lot, I like lots about this company um, I like you know we, you and I have talked over we, we talk about niche problem solving type businesses and Avon Avon fits this this quite nicely I really like this company's defence business. So it has two businesses. There's a protection business, which is essentially about breathing masks, breathing apparatus, um, protection from chemical, nuclear, biological, radiological warfare. And 
its biggest customer is the US Department of Defense. And it's built up a very, very good relationship with um, the DOD. And that, that brings really quite interesting advantages, really, one of which is that, that the DOD helps, helps it develop its products. Yeah, but the, the, other, the other thing about it, which is, which is one of the key attractions, is that to get business with the DOD, you are dealing with highly safety-critical products which are stringently regulated... And therefore, the barrier to entry for new com- new competition is very, very high. And essentially, once you get in with these guys, you, you have a very good chance of sticking around with them. You, you mentioned in the piece that uh, so that you would think that a business like this would, would also be something like fire-breathing apparatus. But you mentioned that that actually is a, a business that Avon has exited because it was too competitive. Yeah. Is there not the same risk of something like that happening here? Or does this DOD relationship no. defend against that? Yeah, it's good. So you, you, you get, and what Avon has got, it's had sole supplier status on, on its masks. So the, the, the M50 mask, which is its main, main product, it's had, had a 10-year sole supply agreement. It's now moving on to different masks. I won't bore people with the terminology, but I'm getting sole supplier agreements with that. So it's got a very sticky, defendable business, which people can't take away from it. Most of the business is in the US. Yeah, most of the business in the US, even more so. I mean, they've bought um, the ballistics, the helmets, the body armour um, business of 3M, which has just gone into the protection business about a month ago. So it's very heavy US defence. Um, but what what I like about this is that you know, because because it's very difficult to compete against, because you've got very sticky, visible, long-term revenues, um, you've got a number of things going for you in that you have um, not just original equipment sales, but you get, as you sell more and more masks and breathing apparatus, not breathing but like breathing systems and that kind of thing, you build up an installed base and then you get a nice business with accessories and spare parts as well yeah absolutely sort of the Gillette type approach then the, uh, that kind of thing the razor blades coming through that, uh, yeah. that, that make you the bulk of the profit so you, so you start getting a very nice nice income stream from that and you also get a situation that Avon is a manufacturer and the more business you get the better the utilisation of your manufacturing plants are now, I've just talked about operational gearing it works here very nicely as well in that you load the plants up and you get some nice increase in profits. And one of the things I'm so positive about on Avon is I think there is significant potential for this business to win military business away from the US. So, for example, it's just got a five-year contract with the UK Ministry of Defence for breathing masks, and it's just taken a large order from the Norwegian Navy for underwater breathing kit. And, you know, you look at the background here of NATO countries committing to up their defence spending to 2% of GDP. And you look at the, the products here that are being made and the, the success that Avon's having in bringing out new products... I think there's a lot of potential here for more orders to be spread across the manufacturing plant and actually see quite big profit increases. Mm. And that makes for a very, very nice business in terms of profit margin, 
return on investment and great cash flow. But it's not only a protection company, Avon. And there is the other side of the business, which is essentially dairy. Yeah. Uh, dairy equipment. It's a bit more tricky. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not a massive fan of it. Um, I mean, if you look at in terms of the profits, so last year the protection business made 31 million of trading profit and the um, dairy business made about seven and a half. And that's been struggling to grow because whilst it's got some good products and it's got, I mean, essentially what it does, it's got things like the liners that you stick on the cows to milk them and it makes things like milking machines, milk monitors. Um, and there's a lot of consumables in that mix as yeah. well. So you've got, you've got that repeat You've got business. a lot of regular repeat business. And a, um, the business called Milk Rights and Interpols, they've got very dominant positions in two big markets, which is the European Union and North America. And there is scope to grow. Demand for dairy products is going up. And you've got markets like India where still most of the cows are milked by hand. So you've got a long-term sort of trend where you can see more move to automation. You've got increasing demand for dairy products. Um, most of that's going to have to come from basically getting more milk out of each cow. So things like efficiency, some things that look after the welfare of the cows in terms of hygiene and animal welfare, which are the kind of products that um, Avon is making, they fit well with that. The problem with that is that the economics of this business are absolutely horrible in that the revenues move up and down with the milk price and then your costs, which is essentially animal feed, move up and down as well. And quite often, the farmers' profits get squeezed so much that they just stop buying stuff from Avon. Mm. And despite these fundamentals, which look sort of mildly positive over the, you know, the next 10, 20 years, this is going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, I used to write a, a disproportionate amount about the price of milk when we had quite a few listed dairies in this country. Yeah. And obviously, it was always a big bone of contention with their relationship with the supermarket and what supermarkets were paying for milk. But the, the bottom line was, it was always hideous. It's always a horrible hideous. business, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so what do they do with it, though? I mean, is, is it, do they persevere? Uh, or yeah, I think they'll offload? just... I, th- I, don't think they've got, I don't think they've got any intention to offload it. I think it'll just chug away. Um... Hopefully, it makes a little bit more money um, over the next few years, but it's not the main driver of the share price. Yes, yeah, so the protection side of things is what we're interested in, yeah. and the price of the shares reflects the quality of that business. Really. Yeah, but you see, because of the ability to, you know, the shares are on quite a punchy rating, about 25, 26 times earnings, but there is a lot of potential for new business coming here. and you put that on the manufacturing base, you could see quite nice profit uplifts here. Uh, it's an excellent business, really well managed. Um, there's scope to do a lot more acquisitions as well. The cash generation is superb. I mean, the company has been net cash for the last four or five years. It's gone into a net debt position to buy the 3M ballistics business and it will be net cash next year. Mm. Um, it's a really, really good business. I really like it. Okay, should we talk about another really good business, slightly different, not a manufacturer as such, Relics. Yeah. This is a really fascinating business. Well, I mean, this is a truly high-quality company. It is. 
It's incredibly profitable, and sometimes you think perhaps a bit too profitable. Yeah. Um, That's mainly in the publishing side of things, in the uh, academic journals. Yeah. I mean, I think one of, one of the things that you know, I sort of learned about over the last couple of years is how valuable data is. Data and information, it's like a form of gold. In fact, it's better than gold. Well, data is the new oil, I think, was the, uh, yeah. the expression. Yeah, and it is. Around. I mean, you, you know, you look at businesses, you know, like London Stock Exchange with its FTSE, FTSE Russell indices business, and you look at the kind of money that, that, you know, the exchanges are making for people to carry their data because it's they control it and it's scarce. And there's a, a large element of that with relics. And the... Um, the sort of the legal, I mean, to me, the sort of risk analytics business is a fascinating business. I, you know, I didn't know they had that. I've been looking at this for a while. Oh, I, 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 mean, this, this, I mean, it's the old greed, old saviour business, which yeah. I know from, from a long, long time ago. And, big, you know, databases like LexisNexis, which is the kind of go-to thing for the legal profession. But this, this risk side of things, I, this is new to me. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, in terms of, it's used a lot by banks and insurance companies to, to weed out fraud. Um money laundering, that type of thing. And they've got some very clever products that can actually spot this kind of thing almost in real time. Mm. And this is a real bit of value-added, really critical product for, for customers. Is this not what, the kind of thing that someone like Experian is also doing? Or, or do Lex, uh, does Relics have a jump on them? Well... There's similarities, you know, because you're, you're examining huge amounts of customer data. I mean, obviously, Experian is doing credit referencing, mm. whereas this is more sort of... Fraud. Transaction. It's transaction, it's monitoring transactions, monitoring data, looking for signs of something that's not quite right. Um, but, it, you know, the principle is, is similar. And um, it's incredibly powerful. And it's, it just makes really good money. You know, it's growing quite strongly, and you can see it continuing to grow quite strongly. The rest of the business is what I, you know, for me, it's a, it's a chugger. These are these are these are chuggers. They just sort of move a lot along a little bit incrementally. Two, three percent revenue growth, four, five percent profit growth a year, which, given the sort of predictability of it, given the profitability of it, you can see why investors like it. But there is, there is a bit of a cloud on this business, um, which which reared its head a few months ago, and uh, something that I think that people do need to be to be aware of, which is the scientific, technical, and medical business, which has got you know all this scientific, academic, science, scientific journals, articles, databases, which are used by academics, researchers, the medical profession. Huge debate about the ownership of, you know, the intellectual property here. Yeah, I mean, it's a big, big business. So it, I think you, you're right, it uh, publishes 18% of the world's scientific articles. Yeah. Uh, 16 million monthly users. This is, this is huge. It's massive. Uh, so presumably it's a, a real money spinner. For, uh, it makes thirty-seven percent profit margin, which is pretty pretty decent. <laughs> if you're, but, the, but if you're an author submitting your articles to them, and you can see this kind of money, you're thinking, oh, "I've got to subscribe to this every year to get hold of this." So you can see why there's a bit of tension there. What what could this lead to? Possibly? It could lead to the risk is the risk is is that 
a lot of the articles, the scientific articles, instead of being behind a paywall with annual subscriptions, is that they stay behind a paywall for a little bit and then they become open source, free to use. Mm. Um, and if that happens, then you could get a pretty decent hole blown in the profits of this business. What sort of uh, proportion of the whole company's profits, the whole group's profits, would that would that affect? Oh, so what? So total profits are about two point six billion, two point six, two point seven billion. I think this business is about, from memory, nine hundred million. Big then. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, so hey. it's so profitable. You know, you know, high margins are a good thing, but they they attract resentment and competition. It goes back to what we were talking about last week. Yeah, I mean, but I don't think something. I don't think anything's going to happen quickly on this. I don't think the, there's an immediate earnings risk on this business. And it's it's a nice again. This is a, a really nice business. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's no nervousness reflected in that share price. None, no, none whatsoever. and you know, if you look at the guidance the company's giving, they, they still expect modest, just just ticking over. You know, increase in in profit. You get the cash flows. You get the buybacks on this. This is a business that a lot of people feel that they can rely on. Hmm. Don't know whether that's a bad thing. Well, I remember uh, sort of boring companies, old reliables, and uh, over the years, companies like Capita have been on that list. So this is a big holding of Nick Trains. Yes, yeah, I think we've got an interview. Uh, we're trying to get an interview with him to talk about his relative holdings actually in uh, Relays and Pearson. So not exactly the same business, but they're um, well. One's been very good, the other not so good. Yeah, we want to know why he thinks uh, why he's still hanging on to both. But you're hanging on to Relics. So. Yeah, I think Relics is Relics is. It's all right for now, but needs watching. Mm, absolutely. Akado, there's one that needs watching. Yes, exasperated sigh. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 don't get, I don't get this. I don't get it. I mean, and I'll tell you why I don't get it in really, in really simple terms, is that this is being pushed by the bulls as a technology company rather than a grocer. And I agree that... Ocado has got software, robots, warehouses, and a logistics system. My, 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 my really, really basic, simple issue is this. The stock market seems to be prepared to put a £9 billion valuation on this business for selling some, a solution to internet retailing that Ocado can't make any money itself from. This, yeah, uh, there is that. The other thing I the other thing I don't quite get, so for a start, it, I mean, it did lose a lot of money last year as well. Just had some numbers, it was about 200 million, although admittedly there was a fire, which... Uh, if you strip out, if you strip out the fire, ignore the fire, still made, still made a loss. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I, my understanding of how you, how you might find reach of value for a tech business like software business is that they make a piece of software and you can then sell that piece of software as many times as you like at no additional cost right. uh, now Ocado my understanding is that 
if you want to buy their technology, they have to build you an enormous warehouse complete with robots and whatever else. And, and that's enormously expensive. And Ocado pay for it. And Ocado pay for that. They pay, so, up fr- pay up front for it. This is the bit I don't get. It's not like a software company. So don't value it like a software company. But I, w- I want to know what's so good about this technology because Ocado is using it in the UK now. And it's not making any, you know, it's it's online grocery business is is not making any money. I, I suspect that they they would come back at you and suggest that that's a scale issue, and that that because well, it's, it, well, it's, it's never hidden scale. Well, it's got one point seven billion of sales. Yeah, it's coming. I mean, and it, okay, and big, it ma- big, big, a big sounding number, but not bigger than the grand scheme. And it makes what thirty five million of EBITDA. Now you can't, you know. Depreciation is a real cost, and amortization of software is a real cost in this business. Depreciation is definitely a real cost when you're running vans and warehouses. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah, in fact, it's more of a real cost to them than it is to many other businesses. Yeah, so to to give a to, you know to not give an operating profit for this business is you know not good enough as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And if you look at the solutions business in the UK, so your main customers there are. Waitrose until September when Marks and Spencer takes over and Morrison's. And there's a, there's a positive EBITDA from that because you recharge all the logistics and warehousing costs back to Morrison's and, and Waitrose and then you get a fee income on top for using for using the, uh, the technology and using the warehouses. But if you add the UK business and the UK solutions business together. Look at the depreciation and amortization of the business. Most of that's on though, because you know the other business is not making revenue, so they're not. Most of that's capitalized and not being expensed, so there isn't a lot of depreciation and amortization on the solutions business yet. Which is, like, which is, a, which is a red flag. Yeah. Um, well, it's it, not because it's not it's not in place yet, so right. you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that to be coming through. But it's something we look out for. It's something you mentioned in the Avon piece. Uh, the, yeah. their conservative policy around that yeah and um, you know this is, so there's a you know if you take the depreciation amortisation expense and take it away from the EBITDA of the UK UK retail business and the UK solutions business there's a loss there mm. and you know what we don't know and what a lot of people I think are rightly concerned about is what happens when Marks and Spencer takes over from Waitrose because the basket size at Marks and Spencer is a lot smaller than it is at Waitrose. But other people are raising issues about the range as well. The product range is not as good. Marks and Spencer, for example, doesn't sell a lot of brands, and mm. um, they want to know how that fits into uh, they, they into, f- the, into the Ocado business. Well, they flirted. With, if you remember, they flirted with brands. They started introducing lots of. Marks and Spencer, this is, and then got rid of half of them again. Yeah. Never quite found their way with that. But yes, absolutely. It's, uh... But you see, Ocado's been quite lucky in that Marks and Spencer's has written a cheque for 560 million quid. Um, if it wasn't for that, I, Ocado would be asking its shareholders for more money through a rights issue now. Mm, rather than asking Marks and Spencer's shareholders for the rights. Yeah, Marks and Spencer's are, <laughs> Marks and Spencer's have had a rights issue and paid for it instead. It yeah, I, I don't, I don't really get this either. Uh, I, th- I think um... what I will say that's interesting, actually, and um, um, obviously being a big fan of, of reading annual reports, um, there is there is some there is some feel you can get for the value, the future value 
of the international solutions business. So the likes of Kroger in the US, Sobeys, which I think is a Canadian business. In the accounts, they give the revenues that they expect to make over the length of the of the contracts. And they also say what the costs are expected to be. So you take one from the other and you can see what the estimate of future profits is. And last year, that was $1.3 billion. And I think this year it's 2.4, 2.5 billion. So you can see that there is more future profit in there. What sort of profit? Operating profit. Operating profit. Yeah. Okay. So, so there is some value there. Okay. The problem is this: is that the market capitalization of Ocado is give or take nine billion, which is the, supposedly an estimate of the present value of future profits in today's money. So you've got 2.4 billion of future profits hidden away in the, in the accounts, which haven't been realised yet. But that's not a present value. That's just a cumulative value. You don't know when they're going to drop through. Mm. So the bulls, who are, for me, who are hyping, hyping this up, for one of them, but hyping's a bit strong. I'll take that back. But you know, pushing the shares as a you know a technology play that you know is worth nine billion plus. For me, I say okay, there's two point four billion there, but in present value, it's a lot less. So how do I get? How do I get from there to nine billion and more than that to buy the shares today? And what you want is you want the likes of Kroger in America to go from you know a handful of warehouses that it's committed to now to maybe up to 20 but you're still dealing with the really difficult economics of making money from selling food yeah it's, I mean it's interesting as well I mean the market share of online grocery in this country which is which has been you know a fairly a fairly adventurous country when it comes to this sort of uh, online shopping uh, is tiny Absolutely tiny. Most people still go to the supermarket. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what Tesco is doing, Tesco is trying to get more and more people into its stores with its Club Card Plus, and because that's where its overheads are. But you know, no one is making, no one is making any decent money from delivering groceries for, to, to people's houses. It just seems to me a a chase of a a dream that will not. Not materialise. The, the, you know, you can see it in Ocado's figures. You know, the revenues go up, go up eleven percent because you get customer growth and the basket size stays the same. And then you look at the costs. Well, all those orders have got to be picked. You know, okay, by robots, but they've also got to be delivered. Mm. So you know, you've still got to put petrol in the vans and and wear and tear. So the costs are actually growing quicker than the revenues. Uh, there, there's a lot of special offers as well for new customers as well. So you know, some of that growth could be driven by twenty pound off your first yeah hundred pound shop or whatever yeah. it might be. So you know, this is not a scalable business. There's no operating leverage. One of my favourite topics at the mm. moment. There is no real operating leverage in this business. Mm. So so. This this will remain a mystery for for perhaps you and me both, John. Yeah, yeah, and it will rem- certainly re- uh, remain uh, outside of the uh, UK quality shares portfolio. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's another company which, which will definitely remain outside, 
and that is Centrica. Let's let's finish off with Centrica. I know we usually like to finish off good news, Phil, but uh, well, we've had a bit. We've had a couple. We've had a couple of let's, couple of positive things. Let's, today, talk, let's talk about Centrica, which is an unrelenting slide. It's just a mess, isn't it? It is. I mean, this this company seems to have spent the last twenty five years working out what it wants to be. You know, I, you know, when I first started following Centrica. One of my fir- one of my first things as an analyst, actually, I was I was I was given utility shares to look at. So this was twenty odd years ago, and um, it's the time when Centrica was you know buying things like the AA and Dynarod and all that kind of stuff. And it tried to do that. Wanted to become like you know wanted you know you could see the logic behind it. Lots of customers. We can try and sell them more stuff and make more money from them. And this that's is what you call a home services business. Yeah. Funny enough, there is another company on the stock market that does that. Yeah. Home serve. Yeah. And <laughs> um, you think, okay, that's fair enough. And then it sort of stopped doing that and got a different chief executive on and think, no, no, we want to be a wholesale energy company. We want to explore and and produce oil and gas. And they, do you remember the gentleman, they took a stake in, they took a 20% stake in. British Energy's nuclear power stations as well, which was an utterly bizarre thing to do. Well, that was a disaster. That was an absolute story. Was an absolute yeah. mess. But you see, the problem is, is that the and this problem has never really gone away from a business like this. Is that when you're selling gas and electricity to 11, 12 million customers or whatever it is, you have to buy that. And you don't know how much it's going to cost. You know, you, you every every couple of years you're trying to lock yourself in, and so if you haven't by supplying your own stuff, you have what's called a natural hedge. So you can use the profits of your wholesale energy and hedge it with a supply business, um, which is what you know Scottish and Southern Energy tried to do as well. It hasn't, hasn't worked. And um, that's what they tried to do. It hasn't worked. And now they want to be a home services company again. Um, and it's just just flabbergasted. I'm just flabbergasted by it. Yeah, I mean, home services, as I said, I mean, home service do that. They're, they're actually looking to the US for their growth. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's you know, pipe, pipe repair cover. And, do you have pipe well, repair at your house? Might do, yeah. Do you really? I think I bought it. I, oh. I've made it to cancel it for years and never get around to it. Oh, yeah. no, I bring them up and say, no, I don't want it anymore. Okay, I'll give it to you for a fiver. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll not go there. Uh, no. Uh, but, but it's like, you know, they are very, you know, they can't, you know, that's a great business because no one ever claims on it. No, I don't. I've so, got... so you know, I'm not look- I'm I don't know I've still got. I've say I've not looked. At, I've not looked at HomeServe for years. But that was always when I did look at it. I thought this is a really nice business. You've got a few million people buying buying water pipe insurance from the footpath to their house yeah, and, the and paying I don't know how much a year or whatever. And you know, no one ever claims on it. I've never heard anyone claim on it. You know, I think I, I think I will keep it because if something ever does go wrong, they're going to have to dig up my. Brand new patio, yeah, uh, and then I will claim it. But it can be nice business, yeah. Um, you know, things like boiler cover, drains cover, electrical cover, and obviously the thing they've got at the moment is this um, home monitoring, the Hive business. You've probably seen the TV adverts mm-hmm. for it. That's doing all right. But what's that? Is it like remote management of your central heating or burger, yeah, burger yeah. alarms? Or yeah, is it all of it? 
Yeah, we do things like boiler monitoring right. as well now, but you know things like appliances, yeah. like. But you see, that's competitive market. Well, I was going to say because Amazon and people like that are in that market. You know, Apple have got an app as well yeah. where you can turn your lights on. Yeah, um, and the big problem for me is, you know, how on earth, you know, you've got all this mess. And the good news is, is that they decided to get out of energy. They decided to get out of looking for gas, producing gas. They're selling off the nuclear stuff, and it's that's going to go. But they're still suffering in their domestic supply business quite quite badly. The business supply business. There's a there's a, there's a contract to buy energy in the business energy business that's going to cost them 100 million pounds next year. Right. And the domestic energy business, the consumer energy business which is you know it's got all these problems with government price caps and all that kind of stuff. That's going to have a better year, but it's but it's going to get offset by this 100 right. million loss. Because previously that was the problem area is hemorrhaging customers. Yeah. So but <laughs> The, the bottom line is, it's a complete mess. You know, there's so many, you know, contracts in here for energy that all got to get unwound, paid off. Um, and then, of course, you know, how, how, how do you value this? You know, how, how do I value 1.2 million Hive customers? I, I don't know. And, I mean, bo- bottom line is, is that... You know, you know there might there might be something in this. You know the shares are quite depressed. If you're prepared to go and put the work in and look at this, there might be something in this. We inherited these shares. Yeah, didn't sell them, sitting on this ugly share price, and we just think well, there's no point doing anything there. You know there is a market. There is a market for energy customers. We've seen Ovo buy SSE's domestic energy and services business. Um. You know, there is those those customers do have a value. Um, the you know the the boiler, the central heating business, the boiler business. There's definitely some value in there. Um, the thing is, is you've got you know you if you look at you've got about nine billion of asset value or enterprise value in in Centrica, and uh, you know half of that's debt. And it's it's it looks a really hard job to me to just to try and get to the bottom of this. So um, unless you're a real, you know, stickler for this kind of thing, it's probably one just to avoid. But it's it's a fascinating example in value destruction. Maybe something to write about at some point. You know, we, you know, we often look at good companies. Maybe have a look at a bad one. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd say that fills you with fills that prospect fills yeah, you with, uh, yeah. with dread. Yeah, not, maybe not. Nothing for no relish, really. <laughs> okay, thank you, Phil. Um, let me talk you through what else we've got in the magazine. Uh, all the usual uh, company results and tips and stock screens and comments, including Phil's wonderful uh, Avon rubber piece, which we talked about earlier. Uh, interesting news section this week, um, looking at uh, electric cars mainly in the news feature uh, on the news that the government is uh, planning to ban the sale of uh, petrol and diesel cars from 2035, something which the industry, it seems, isn't very ready for and uh, we would tend to agree. Some features uh, from uh, John Rosier, his diary in this week, uh, looking at why he's picking up some gold-related uh, shares uh, and ETFs at the moment. Uh, Michael Taylor is looking at trading 
gaps in share prices, which is something that happens very often with illiquid shares, like last week's bargain shares, for example. Um, and then the cover feature, we've talked about uh, some sort of crazy share price moves on this podcast, but uh, this is exactly what the cover feature is about this week. It's about how social contagion can, can lead to, to market manias, market madness, and uh, how you should perhaps protect yourself from that and, and avoid uh, the madness of crowd when it hits. So, thank you again, Phil. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week. Actually, I'll be back again next week. I think you're on holiday next week. But in the meantime, get to the uh, news agent, pick up the magazine. Uh, Surviving Market Madness, Why Investment Mania Spread, and How to Avoid Them. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.